Lord, how thankful we are that we can come to worship you. Thank you that we can be here together. And we thank you, Father, that you've given us your good word. And when we have your word, Father, we have what we need. Be with us now and help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Three weeks ago, I was walking in through the streets of Jerusalem. I was by myself. I was in a tour group, and the guy who was I helping with, he was getting sick and wanted to go back to the hotel. So I got a cab, and the two of us went together back to the hotel, and then I took another cab back, but they kind of dropped me off in the middle of nowhere, right along these massive walls. And so I was walking along these walls, and it's just amazing as you go along. These are the walls that go around Jerusalem, and they're so high, and they're so big. And I kept thinking, I wonder if David built that. And I thought, no, that was way before David. Well, maybe that was time when the Crusaders were there. No, this was before the Crusaders. And they said, well, I kept thinking, well, who made these? And it came to my mind, oh, all of this that we see in terms of these huge walls, almost all of it, not all, but most of it, came from a very interesting person, Suleiman the Magnificent. Now, isn't that a nice name? If you're looking for a good name for a boy, maybe Suleiman the Magnificent. Um, you can tell how humble he was when he calls himself the, you know, that, that's Suleiman the Magnificent. Anyways, I was walking along there and looking at this and thinking, that's amazing to think that the guy who now, when you walk around there and you see these massive walls all around the city, you realize this was built by a Muslim. He was part of the Ottoman Empire, and he was the one that built up what the Crusaders had left and what was there, and he built these massive walls that you see today. One of the things important about Suleiman to understand is that he was in a very, very important point in the history of the world, particularly, we might say, about the history, for example, let's say, of Europe. Suleiman was a remarkable person. He was a terrific leader, a terrific warrior. And what happened is they started moving up from Constantinople, and they kept going further and further north, beating one group after another. Another Christian group was taken out, another one taken out. <clears throat> and this Islamic group, the Ottomans, were going further and further up into, into Europe. And it finally came to a big showdown. And what happened was in 1529, during this time, by the way, to give you some reference, Martin Luther is involved with what's going on in the, in, in the changes that are going on in the church and the Reformation. But what was happening is they realized that the Ottomans were on their way, and they realized that this could be one of the most defining battles that could ever happen. Because the Ottomans and the Islamic group was moving further and further up, and finally they came to this battle, and it was there in 1529, there along the gates of Vienna, they realized this was going to be the battle that could determine the future. Suleiman had over 12,000 well-trained warriors. They had guns. They had all kinds of things, those things that throw all the big rocks, whatever they're called, all that stuff. They had everything they needed. And so they started fighting, and they started going after each other and trying to break down the walls there in Vienna. And after a couple of months of trying this, Suleiman realized that he was losing his men. He wasn't getting through, and he turned around and headed back down to what today we would call Turkey. It was a massive clash between two cultures. There was the Christian culture, they called themselves the Roly, the Roly, excuse me, the Roman group, Christian group, and then there was the group, the Islamic group, the Ottoman Empire. And they recognized in that clash what was going on, somebody was gonna win, 
and whoever it was, it was going to have massive importance for what happened. The rest of Europe could have, if they had, if they had won, they could have possibly gone all the way up through northern Europe and the whole thing would be under Islam today. It may yet be the way things are going, but at least it didn't at that point. And what's very interesting here that's going on is you realize two groups, very different, hitting together, and that clash is incredibly important. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. This morning, we're going to be talking about a clash between two great powers. The one is God, and the other one is Satan. What we see here in the Bible, in the scriptures, and when you look at the Bible, particularly in the early parts of the Bible, you've got a clash of two great groups, powerful groups, hitting one against the other. And this is very, very important because we recognize when we look at the scriptures that what we see is that what happened, God created the earth good. We talk about the six days of creation. Every day it was good. It was good. It was good. In the sixth day, it was very good. Then the big question, what happened? Because in the sixth day, it said everything was good. It was perfect. It was wonderful. And then go in the next chapter, and it's all of a sudden, everything has changed. The first man and the first woman were deceived by a serpent who told him, really? Did God really say that? Are you sure that's what God said? And as we know, Eve took the fruit, and her husband took it, and we call that the fall. Mankind leaving that part of that world where God created for them, and they were turned out of the garden, out of them no longer walking in the evening with God. It was a massive fall that has impacted them, and it's impacted every generation since then. And so we recognize when we're talking about a series dealing with the demonic, you have to start from the very beginning, and that's what it's all about. It begins with Adam and Eve in the garden, and it continues on today until Christ returns in power to glory. And we're living somewhere in that middle part between where we had the beauty of the man and the woman, naked and unashamed, in fellowship with God to the book of Revelation, where God says, that's it, evil is no longer to be around. So what we're doing this morning is we're going to be looking at that big clash that's going on between these kingdoms. Now, if you were with us last week, you're meant to, you may remember, we were talking about worldview, how the fact that the worldview that we've had for probably almost 2,000 years seems to be declining. And more and more, we've got people who are talking about the fact that we, don't talk, we should never talk about the spirit world, about demons. Nobody believes that stuff anymore. I mean, who would believe things like that? The reality is we have more and more, we, have, we called last week, naturalism. Naturalism is saying all there is is what we can see, feel, understand, touch, weigh, all the things there. We can't think about there's anything else out there. And the person we quoted, if you remember, was Carl Sagan. Carl Sagan's really one of the apostles of naturalism. And his famous phrase, if you remember from last week, is this, the cosmos is all that is, or ever was, or ever will be. And we mentioned last week, what's fascinating about that is, really, how would you know that? How could you know? He says the cosmos is all that is. How do you know? Do you know where all the cosmos is? Do you know where it stops? I mean, it's amazing. You look at the stars, and we have the, you know, the telescopes, and they look, and they keep going further and further, and say, when does that stop? Does it ever stop? 
And here you got Carl Sagan, well, cosmos is all that is, ever was. How do you know it's all it ever was? How do you know it didn't go on for millennia, for thousands and thousands of light years before ever man came? And you know, what's interesting here, what you're seeing is naturalism is more and more becoming a religion, replacing the Christian religion. And so as Christians, we sound like we're nutcases talking about demons, talking about these kind of things. A lot of people think, really, you don't believe that kind of stuff, do you? Well, what we're going to see in our passage this morning is we ought to believe it. It's absolutely clearly taught in the scriptures. And we're going to be looking at several passages this morning. I want to encourage you to do that. We're going to be looking at them in just a few minutes. But what I want to remember, we're going to be talking about here is the fact that God is at work and then we have, a, 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 we have one who hates us. And there's an ongoing battle between God and between Satan. Turn with me in your Bible to a book that maybe you haven't turned to recently. It's the book of Job. The book of Job. If you're in, by the way, we remember we had a psalm. If you're in psalms, go back a few pages and you'll be in Job. Job chapter 1 is a fascinating chapter. It's actually a hard book, but it's an important book. And it talks about the things of Job and all the things he did and how rich he was. But we pick up the story in verse 6. And this is important because it's telling us something about what is the nature of this enemy we have who we call Satan. And what power does he have? Well, this passage gives us a clue of what's talking about what's going on here. I'm reading from chapter 1, verse 6. One day, the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came with them. The Lord asked Satan, where have you come from? From roaming through the earth, Satan answered him, and walking around on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? This is where it all starts happening. Have you considered my servant Job? No one else on earth is like him, a man of perfect integrity who fears God and turns away from evil. Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? Haven't you placed a hedge around him, his household, and everything he owns? Well, you've blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions are spread out in the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he owns. He'll surely curse you to your face. Verse 12. Very well, the Lord said to Satan, everything he owns is in your power. Now notice this next phrase. However, you must not lay a hand on Job himself. So Satan went out in the Lord's presence. What's important about this passage, obviously, is the point of saying, before one, it seems weird. God is talking to Satan. Yes, as far as we know, Satan is a fallen angel. That's probably the only reason we can think of that, what it could be, because we know angels were created by God. They were good. But it seems that some of them went bad, particularly when you read Jude. In the book of Jude and 2 Peter, it talks about demonic evils, uh, creatures that are there being captured. And what seems to be here, it's interesting, it's saying somehow there's a thing where Satan can talk to God, and God says, really, you can try to do what you want to do. But what's important here is that phrase where, where God says this, however, we thank God for that word, however, however, you must not lay a hand on Job himself. In other words, the important point that's saying here is God's saying, all right, you do have power. I'm not going to deny that. But there are limits. 
And this is a very important part where now we're doing this whole issue of looking at the big picture of talking about this challenge and, the, and this clash between God and Satan. Satan is real. Satan has power, but he has limited power. That's very important. Very important what's going on because even in this passage, it's making clear to us that what's happening here is that God does know what's happening and God does give him a certain amount of freedom, but only so far. And that is very important. And it's important here because we realize there are things that Satan can do, but there are also things he cannot do. We'll come to that in just a moment. By the way, when we use the word Satan, the word Satan is really a Hebrew word. Just in Hebrew, it's called Satan. And it means basically to oppress or to oppose uh, or, or to be an adversary. And of course, that's a good name for Satan because that's exactly what he does. We can call him other names. There's other words that you can use, Beelzebub, Satan. But they all talk about the same kind of thing. Now, it's interesting. When you look at the Old Testament, there's very little that deals with the demonic. Some would argue there's a little bit there and that there probably certainly is. There is a Hebrew word called shadim, uh, which seems to be referring to a demonic thing. But even there, it's more dealing with um, the, the, the culture around Israel, where they were worshiping all these strange idols, that they use this word shadim, demon, to describe them, that they are, they're, they are in cultures and nations and people that are turning away to other powers and not following God. And what's interesting, in the Old Testament, you don't have a single time where a demon is, is, is taken out. And that's kind of fascinating. It doesn't mean it never happened, but it's interesting the fact that it's not recorded in Scripture. There is no example of what we might call an exorcism, of getting rid of a demon in the Old Testament. Now, what's fascinating here is there's the Old Testament, and that's we're talking a couple thousand years that we have no idea of what it was like in the Old Testament. It doesn't tell us anything about that. It doesn't seem to have happened. But boy, does that change the minute Jesus comes into this world. When Jesus Christ comes into this world, there's like a demonic explosion sent by Satan. Why? Well, it should be, pretty, I guess, pretty obvious in one sense. Because suddenly, when Jesus Christ comes into the world, and he's there upon this world, suddenly there is this understanding, oh my goodness, this is Jesus himself, son of God, son of man, fully God, fully human. He's on this earth. Now the battle begins. And so it's fascinating. In the Old Testament, almost nothing, a little bit, but not much. You come to the New Testament, it is full of things dealing with the demonic. And I think it's got to be only for that major reason. Suddenly, it's mano o mano, man a man. There's going on. There's going to be this battle that's going on. And this is absolutely critical. So what we see here in the book of Job, and we see what's going on, is particularly important. So what I want to do is go back to a book that you know well, I hope you remember, it was called The Gospel of Mark. Turn with me to The Gospel of Mark. Because what I want to do is to us to look at a couple passages, because we need to really, I think, understand how important it is for this whole understanding of the fact that there is an ongoing battle. And so if you turn to Mark chapter 1, the very beginning of the book, you remember that Mark is the shortest of the Gospels. He says, you know, give me the facts, ma'am, and then he goes on. 
But what we see in the Gospel of Mark is very important. It talks about John the Baptist. That's the real long part. Then there's the baptism of Jesus, which is very important. That's when he came, the voice from heaven, you are my beloved son, I take delight in you. But what's fascinating is Jesus comes out of the water, and you have this famous verse, verse 12. Immediately the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, drove him. That is, immediately the Holy Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. Now again, we talked about before, 40 is an important name in Scripture. We talk about 40 days in front of the wilderness, all that stuff. But here he is, alone in the wilderness, 40 days of being tempted. And what you see from the very beginning here, it's saying, all right, Jesus, do you really have the right stuff? Do you have the ability to withstand 40 days of having Satan putting all this in front of you, cursing at you, doing this? telling you to go climb up on this top of the mountain and throw yourself off. If you bow down to me, I'll give you all the nations of the world. Can you do this for 40 days? Could you do it for four days? Could I do it for four minutes? He does it for 40 days. And he comes out victorious. And so what we see in this passage is here you've got Jesus coming out of this, coming out of all this, and he's moving on into all that's going on. Turn with me, if you will, look down in this next little passage, if you would. As we look down, let me see, make sure I got the right thing here. Oh, here we are. Thank you. Okay, he comes out of the wilderness, and we see what's happening here. Um, move down, if you would, to, let's say, verse 14. Okay, we're still in Mark. We looked at Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, and we see what's very interesting. You have the temptation, you have a short little verses about the ministry in Galilee in verses 14, but notice verse 15, because verse 14 and 15 give us the idea of what is this all about? What is the purpose of Jesus to come to heaven, I mean to come to earth? Verse 14, after John, that is John the Baptist, was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee preaching the good news of God. Okay, and he says, quote, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God has come near. The central teaching of Jesus is not love. The central teaching of Jesus is about the kingdom. It certainly involves love, but his point is the kingdom. And the fact is that Jesus is now is establishing a kingdom that Satan has owned for a long time, and he's taken them out. And so when it says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. Then you've got a short section that talks about the calling of the disciples, and we pick up the story again in verse 21. Okay? He left their, the father Zebedee, and they boat, and the hired men, and they followed Jesus. Verse 21. Then they, the apostles that he had just chosen, went into Capernaum, and right away he entered his synagogue on the Sabbath and began to teach. They were astonished at his teaching, because unlike the scribes, he was teaching them as one having authority. Now notice verse 23. Just then, a man with an unclean spirit, we might call it a demonic spirit, was in the synagogue. That's a strange place to have a demonic spirit. But notice verse 24. He cried out, What do you have to do with us, Jesus Nazarene? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. 
The irony here is the apostles don't know what he's talking about. But what is fascinating here is the demon knows more about what Jesus is doing than the apostles do. They're going, huh? What? Excuse me? What are you talking about? And it's saying, wait a minute. These, these, these guys, this one, this talk, this unclean spirit, they know who he is. And of course, they're terrified by it. But Jesus rebuked him and said, be quiet and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsed him, shouted with a loud voice and came out of him. Verse 27, they were all amazed. So they began to argue with one another and said, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even unclean spirits and they obey him. And they're like, wow, what is going on here? This is like something we have never seen. Drop down to verse 29, continuing with the story. Verse 29. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went to Simon and Andrew's house with James and John. Simon's mother-in-law was lying in bed with a fever, and they told him about it at once. So he went to her, took her by the hand, raised her up. The fever left her, and she began to serve her. Now notice, if you would, okay, we talked about Simon and Andrew. We talked about Simon's mother-in-law was lying in bed with a fever. Now what's interesting here, it doesn't say, oh, she must have had a, you know, a, a, a evil spirit or something. It doesn't say at all. It says this was a clear medical issue. She had a fever, and, and, and Jesus uh, healed her. Now notice going on verse 14. He healed, verse, excuse me, verse 34. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases, and notice this, and drove out many demons. Now that's an important passage because it's saying to you they didn't understand the difference between what was demonic and what was just medical. Now, I realize we live in a culture with, you know, we're, we're grateful for the fact of doctors and people that work on this and for the medicine we have, and it's incredible. But sometimes we look at these people in the ancient times and think like they're all morons. And you can hear people talk about this if you're talking about this issue. Say, oh, well, you know, everybody in the ancient world thought some demon or some terrible thing was causing this, and they didn't understand like we're going on. Like, whoa. Don't say that because what you see right here in the scriptures is very clear. They did make a distinction between what was demonic and what was just medical, a medical issue. And that is important. They, they knew the difference and Jesus knew the difference. And so what happens that you see in that passage, it says they healed many who were sick with various diseases. And they understand there's different ones. And he drove out many demons. But he would not permit the demons to speak because he knew them. Now, what's interesting here is you've got in this passage this incredible thing of saying, okay, here it is. Christ is here. He knows the difference between what is medical and what is spiritual. And he came and he dealt with both of them. He dealt with the medical issue by healing them. He dealt with the demonic evil by exorcism, taking that, taking that away. And again, it's very, very critical to see what's going on. Turn with me, if you would, in your Bible. Let's turn down to, um, um, let me see which passage. Turn, if you would, over to chapter 5, Mark chapter 5. In Mark chapter 5, we have one of the best illustrations of the power of Jesus assaulting the kingdom of Satan. This is one of the most well-known passages uh, most of you have read it many times, but I want you to think of it in light of the fact of this ongoing battle between God and, well, it's in this case, we're talking about Jesus and the devil. Look at verse five, uh, chapter 5, verse 1. 
Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the region of the Gerizines. This is a very um, Gentile, non-Jewish part of it on the southwest, southeast side. As soon as he, Jesus, got out of the boat, a man with unclean spirit came out of the tombs and met him. And then the description here is just tragic. He, this man, lived in the tombs. No one was able to restrain him anymore, even with chains, because he'd often been bound with shackles and chains, but had snapped off the chains and smashed the shackles. By the way, we'll talk about this in the next couple of weeks. This is one of the things you do see in demonic deal is incredible power. This is exactly what this guy had. He's just one guy, but he was able to smash the chains. And it said, no one was strong enough to subdue him. And always, verse 5, night and day, he was crying out among the tombs and in the mountains and cutting himself with stones. This guy is a wreck. I mean, he's a mess. Now think about what we did when we talked about, we began with the story about Adam and Eve. That Adam and Eve, before they fell, that they were living in a wonderful place. They were naked, didn't know, didn't care. It was wonderful. They were in a relationship with God. They were in this great place until Satan comes in and they fall. And in fact, it's interesting, some of the Jewish rabbis, they talk about what were Adam and Eve like in the garden. And one of the things they say is, Adam and Eve were so incredibly beautiful. There was like glory, there was like a glow over them. You couldn't even look at them. They were just so awesome. And you say, now think about what they were like this. And now think about what this man living in the tomb is like. He's at the other end of the spectrum. This is a man that has incredible power, but he's crying out night and day. He's cutting himself. He's destroying himself. Which is, by the way, what everything that Satan's trying to do to destroy, to kill. And here, this man, he is sort of the poster child of what happens when the demonic is fully involved in the life of a person. And it's such a tragic story. And so we read the passage. It said, verse 6, when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and he knelt down before him and he cried out with a loud voice, what do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you before God, don't torment me. For he told him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And now verse 9, Jesus asked this man, obviously there's a demonic spirit speaking through this man. Verse 9, what is your name, he asked him. And the answer kind of makes your bones kind of chill. My name is Legion. Right up there, I'd be getting the heebie-jeebies when I heard that one. His name is Legion? Yeah. In the Roman culture that day, a legion was about 5,000 plus if you had a full group. And can you imagine? Here's Jesus, the carpenter from Jesus, uh, the carpenter from Nazareth, and he is now being confronted by a guy that maybe has over 5,000 demonic beings arrayed against him. It is an amazing, amazing pa passage. Because when this is happening, when it says, what is your name? He said, my name is Legion. He answered, because we're many. And he kept begging him not to send him out of the region. Now, we know the, it's, it's, it's almost funny, but it's not. Verse 11, now a large herd of pigs was there feeding on the hillside. The demons begged them, send us to the pigs so we may enter them. And he gave them permission. Notice again, 
Jesus giving permission. In other words, they had to get permission to do this. Now, it was good for the man, but it sure wasn't good for the pigs. And it wasn't good for the man who owned all the pigs. But what happened, it says, they gave them permission. Then the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd of about 2,000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned there. Again, notice this. When they come out, it's like death for them. They want to be something to have like a body to live in, something that they could have that's physical. And so it says that they all drowned. Now, we know the rest of the story. The guys were like, please leave. You're bad for business. Go on the other side of the lake kind of deal. But what you have here in this passage that's very, very important is recognizing again, here you've got Jesus, just one man from Nazareth. Over here, 5,000-plus demonic creatures. You know, it's interesting. When they were doing some excavations in Egypt, they found a lot of these papyrus. You know, in Egypt, because it's so dry and so hot, they find these 1,000-year-old passages and stuff. And they found one, and what it was, it was an incantation one that talked about if you want to get rid of a demonic spirit, you go through these kind of things, you do this, you do this kind of reading, you do this kind of deal, you tie these things around people's neck. They have all these kind of GD things that you've got to do and hopefully kick out the bad spirits. What's fascinating here is Jesus doesn't say, well, we're going to do like an eight-week intervention here and da-da-da-da-da. Jesus says what we see in this passage right here. He said to the man, he said, come out, you unclean spirit. It's gone. It's over. The story's done for them. And so what you have in this passage that's so incredible and so important is recognizing there is Jesus, just one. Here's over 5,000. And yet that one, Jesus, was all that they're needed. You know, it's interesting here, we talk about the power that Satan has, and he does have power. But it is nothing comparing to what God has, what Christ has. And that's very important us to remember, because sometimes we feel like we're so overwhelmed with this, and we feel like Satan's maybe working in our life, and he could be at times. And we look at this and say, no, wait a minute. When this man, the poster child of how bad it can look, can be healed that quickly, it's credible. If you look at that passage one more time, it says into the verse, um, picking up in verse 15, they came to Jesus and saw the man who had been demon-possessed by the legion, I love this phrase, sitting there, dressed, in his right mind. It's like, what happened to this guy? Pretty easy. He met Jesus. We have to be very careful that we always remember the power of Christ is so much more what Satan can ever imagine. Which raises these questions. If that's true, why does Satan keep doing what he's doing? If he's seen all these different miracles that Jesus does, all these healing miracles, there's about a hundred of them in the Gospel of Mark. Why is it that he doesn't just say, you know, I, I quit, I'm retiring, I'm moving to Miami, you know, something like that? Well, Forrest, that's not a good place. Well, never, that's another story. Okay, anyways. But the point is, he's saying, he's saying look at this. And you've got this going on. There's going on, and you recognize the power of Christ is so much different than the power of Satan. Why doesn't Satan just say, uh, you know, well, I'm, I think I'll just give it up? It's important to remember when we think, and again, a lot of this is really 
little bit hard for us in these early chapters of scriptures to know about it, but it certainly seems that God has angels. We read about them all the time. And there were seen to be angels who went bad. Of course, Satan is the main one, but hundreds, maybe thousands that went bad also. And so here you've got Jesus, and here you've got thousands of raid against him. When you say, well, wait a minute, why does Satan just not just give up? Well, for one thing, remember, angels do not know all things. Remember where it says, not, neither the angels know when the hour of the Son of Man will come? Angels don't know. Well, for sure, the demons don't know either. Well, that's important to recognize. There are demonic creatures. They do not have the, all the things and the knowledge that God has. God, Christ, obviously knows exactly what's happening, when it's going to happen. They do not. The other thing is, if we think that, G, that, that, that really that Satan, we talk about the fall, it may very well be, what was the thing that kind of tripped him out, that made him go out this way? It's very possible that it was pride. Many of the early church fathers said it was pride that made Satan fall. And it may be that Satan is still just so arrogant, thinking he's still got a chance to win. Now remember, he doesn't know what all the future is. He's living in the present. And I think he's still thinking, you know, maybe I've got a shot here. And I'm going to keep on going until whatever, because he doesn't know the future. And by the way, this will come up maybe next week or the week after that, and we talk about sometimes when people can have incredible knowledge, and we wonder where does that come from. That's another story. We'll talk about that next week. But here's the point. Satan thinks he still has a chance of winning because he doesn't have the ability to look to the future of what's going to happen to him. We thank God we've got a book called the Book of Revelation that tells us exactly what's going to happen to him. And after that, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth where there's righteousness. He doesn't know that. Now, you can say, well, he probably can read, right? Yeah, maybe he's reading Hal Lindsey's book, but I, you know, I don't think he believes it. But see, the point here that's going on is he's saying, what's happening here is a massive collision between two kingdoms, the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of Satan. Turn with me, if you will, to a different passage. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. Go back in your Bible a few pages. Matthew chapter 12, there's a famous passage. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 22, we pick up this passage. I'll read, uh, let me see, verse 22. Let me see. Well, pick it up 22. Uh, it talks about a house divided. Verse 22. So this is Matthew chapter 12, verse 22. It says, Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and unable to speak was brought to them. He healed them so the man could both see, speak and see. Now notice, here's an example where it's both. This man did have a demonic power that had, helped make, that had made him uh, sick. So we're going to see, talk more about that next week. It said, all the crowd were astonished and said, perhaps this is the son of David. When the Pharisees heard, they said, this man drives out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Until they didn't like him. And they call him the worst kind of curse word they can, referring to him as the chief of the demons. Now, verse 25, knowing their thoughts, he, Jesus, told them, Every kingdom divided against itself is headed for destruction, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. Here's this famous verse. If Satan drives out, verse 26, if Satan drives out, excuse me, if Satan drives out Satan, he's divided against himself. 
How then will his kingdom stand? Now, verse 27 is one of the key verses for understanding the, the battle, battle that's going on. Jesus says, if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, like you're claiming to be, well, then who's your sons driving them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. And then verse 28, if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. That is a key verse in the New Testament. If I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. Notice what he's saying here. He's saying one of the major things that has to happen with the coming of the kingdom is Jesus taking on directly the demonic and dealing with it. If I drive out demons, if, excuse me, if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God and the kingdom of God has come to you, it's saying the kingdom of God has. Mark puts it a little different. He said the kingdom of God is near. It's right among us. And what's important here is what you see going on is that here you've got this thing we're talking about, and he's saying this has been a central part of what God is doing. One of the central reasons that God sent his son into the world is to directly confront the demonic world. And so he says in this passage, I'm doing exactly what my father's told me to do. One more passage. Turn with me the other direction to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke chapter 10. In Luke chapter 10, we'll be picking it up down in verse 18. Uh, this is a story about how Jesus sends out the, the, the disciples. Then he sends out the 70 to go out in pairs and to preach the good news of the gospel. Uh, he talks about the cities of Chorazin and Bethsaida who are going to be judged because they didn't respond to Christ. And then you come to verse 17. The 70, the ones he sent out, returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. In other words, hey, we thought it was just you who could do this. We found out that we can do it too. That you're giving us the power to be able to go against that which is demonic and that is wrong. And notice what he said there. Jesus says, verse 18, another key verse. He, Jesus said to them, I watched Satan fall from heaven like a lightning flash. He's saying, you know what it's like? A power that I have that I've entrusted with you, and which ultimately he trusts to every believer who comes to faith in Christ, is the power to say to a demonic being, get out of here now. You have no power over me, and you need to leave. First it's Jesus. Then it's the apostles. Then it's the 70. And then it's us. And what's very, very important here is here you're seeing in this passage, I, he goes and he makes this, I watch Satan fall from heaven like a lightning flash. No, he's going down. He's going way down. His kingdom is evaporating. And it's not done yet. He's still alive and well. But we know where the story's going to end. And where the story's going to end is going to be telling us, you're gone, Satan. All your minions and all your ones that are opposed to God, they're gone too. And there'll be a new heaven and a new earth where there's righteousness, where Christ will wipe away every tear from our eyes and we'll be with him forever. The scriptures make it very, very clear. We have an enemy. But the two things we need to remember, we don't have to live in fear. 
It is interesting in the passage that we looked at, we won't turn to it, but after he cured that man who was just a wreck, who'd been living in the tombs, it's interesting, they asked how the people responded, and it said, and the people were afraid. There was fear. They had never seen power like that before, and they were afraid. And so what we've got in this passage is recognizing there are two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. Satan's is being attacked every time you are tempted and you say no to Satan. Satan is being attacked every time you choose to do that which is right instead of that which is wrong. And he will do everything he can to try to mix you up and to get you confused. We're going to talk about that a lot next week, the different ways he does that. But every time that we look, we're, we're tempted to do evil, and he's like whispering in your ear, go ahead, it's good, everybody does it. Every time we say no by the power of God, it's one more chink taken out of his wall. And ultimately will come that day, he's gone forever. And we'll be with our Lord forever. Our Father, we thank you that you've given us the scriptures. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that when you came, it was like an explosion of power, your power to confront Satan, all that he's done, all that he's doing. But we thank you, Lord, that'll come to an end. We thank you, Lord, that we have a great hope. And we would ask that you be with us and help us as we continue with our worship. And as we take the offering, that, Father, all of that, worshiping in song, worshiping in giving, that all of that would be given to you with hearts of gratitude for what you've done for us. Grow our faith, Lord Jesus, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.